Good morning. Welcome to Victory Life Church. We're so glad you're with us to worship this morning. My name is Peter Knotts. I'm the youth and associate pastor here, and we're so excited that you are with us in worship. At our church, we say that our vision is to point people to Jesus who can rewrite every life story, and so we're excited to see how we can pursue that vision in this service and in everything that we do. If you are new here, we want to invite you to fill out one of the connection cards. They're on the backs of the seats in front of you. Uh, we would love to connect with you and get to know you better, help you get uh, plugged into our church. So if you fill one of those out, you can drop it off at the visitor's desk over here. They'll give you a free gift, uh, and we'll connect with you throughout the week. If you are worshiping online, we want to give a special welcome to you as well and invite you to go over to vlchurch.com. There will be a banner at the top of the website that says new here. You can click on that, fill out the form, and we'll be able to connect with you that way. I want to tell you a little bit about our CIY uh, retreat that our youth just went on. Um, many of you were praying for us and, and giving toward that retreat, so we appreciate that. And I wanted to just give you um, some testimonies from our youth uh, just to tell you about how the Lord was working through that trip. Um, so one of our youth said one of the things that, that she learned through that trip was that God can do all things and loves us no matter what. Another one said, I was able to surrender things to God and got a lot closer to everyone who came on the trip. And I'll read one more for you. Uh, I felt accepted and appreciated by my friends in a way I haven't felt before. Uh, so there was, there was some, a real palpable work of God happening on this trip. We really hoped that our youth would be growing in their relationship with Jesus, that they would be bonded together, and that there'd be energy and excitement for our youth group. Um, and we really felt like the Lord did that in our group. So once again, thank you so much for your giving. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, we appreciate your support, and we appreciate, um, yeah, just the opportunity to really get in a good, good, good rhythm as a youth group and be a contributing part of our church. I want to invite you now to continue uh, in worship through your giving. Uh, so uh, giving is part of how we respond to God and, and glorify Him, honor Him for what He does in our lives. Um, so if you would like to give, you can give by texting, uh, you can give online, or you can give as you exit the sanctuary today. Thank you for your generosity. I want to invite you to stand now as we transition into our part of service where we worship through singing, um, and let me pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being our foundation. Thank you for being uh, the rock that we have built our lives on, the God whose love never changes. God, no matter where we are uh, coming from in our lives today, Lord, we know that you are the same, that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, that you desire to have a relationship with us and point us uh, to the good life that you made us for. Pray that you would be with us today. Pray that our worship and our praise would be honoring to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I hope you come to worship the Lord today. Let's express with our mouth his worth to us and give him glory and honor in this place. We put our hands together. Come on. Exalted and seated on the throne. All right, let's express it to him now. 
our God a firm foundation. Oh, our God a firm foundation, our rock the only solid ground as nations rise and fall. Kingdoms once strong now shaken, but we trust forever in your, yes we do, the name of Jesus. We trust the name of Jesus. You are the only
God is exalted. Jesus is exalted today. So we should be exalting along with the heavens this morning. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Let's continue to worship. He is exalted. exalted on high and I will praise you he is exalted forever exalted and I will praise his name for he I will praise you. He is exalted, forever exalted, and I will praise his name. For he is the Lord, yes, you are, forever.
I want to share a scripture with you this morning. I mentioned it a few moments ago when we were singing Only King Forever, but God is seated on the throne today. He is exalted to the highest place, and Jesus there exalted. And I know because the scripture says in Philippians, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, Jesus, to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Everything, every knee. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Because Jesus was willing to humble himself and take the cross for you and me, he is exalted this morning. He is the only king forever. We worship him and praise him for bringing us back into relationship with God the Father. Let's continue to worship. The Savior alone carried the cross for all of my debts. He paid the cost. Salvation complete. Now forever I'm free.
outside of a relationship with you, this life means nothing. But in relationship with you, we have everything. We have your peace. We have your protection. We have your forgiveness. We have your healing. We have eternal life in you. This morning, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you for that. And I pray this morning that if anybody does not know you, I pray this morning that you would reveal yourself to them, Lord. By your Holy Spirit, would you make yourself known so that they could have peace, protection, healing, forgiveness, and eternal life. We ask all these things. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. You may be seated. Well, let's try this. As I prepare to introduce our guest speaker this morning, children, you may be dismissed for young disciples. Don't break anything on the way like I did. <laughs> and a good morning to everyone. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Nathan Flaker, and I'm currently the chairman of the trustee board here at VLC. And it is my pleasure this morning to introduce Daniel Bond, our guest speaker. Uh, Daniel is the head principal at Heritage Classical Academy, or HCA for short. HCA serves students in preschool through 10th grade at their campuses in Peninsula, Bainbridge, and Northfield, and they are in the process of adding their 11th and 12th grade offerings over the next few years. Daniel has degrees from Letourneau University and Denver Seminary and has held various roles within the church and academia in his career. 
Originally from Texas, he moved to the area six years ago to serve at HCA. And Pastor Matt has spoken at morning convocation at HCA a few different times now. And Daniel is kind enough to return the favor with Pastor Matt on vacation this week. Uh, VLC has many connections to HCA. There are many families here that have students um, uh, there, as well as a few staff members, including my wife, Megan, who just so happens to be Daniel's assistant. Uh, so my family and I and uh, all the other families in attendance that are part of HCA are very grateful to Daniel and the entire HCA staff for the way they shepherd students who, in the mission statement of the school, are lifelong learners who think and live for Christ. So I'm very excited to hear what he has to share with us this morning, so please join me in welcoming Daniel to VLC. Thanks, Nathan, and thank you, Victory Life, for the invitation to be here. Um, been warmly received and uh, great hospitality by the staff and the elders and the leaders here at the church. So thank you. Uh, the blessing is all mine this morning to be here to share with you from God's word. And thanks to Pastor Matt for the invitation. And certainly we all hope and pray that he is resting well. And I know you're eager to have him back with you. When Pastor Matt asked me to, to share several weeks ago um, with you and he told me that the, you guys were working through the book of Romans, I was thrilled at the opportunity to um, walk through Romans chapter 4 together. And Romans 4, uh, verses 1 through 12, is really all about the gospel of Jesus. And so that's what we'll be walking through this morning is, um, what is the true gospel and how do we rightly understand what it is to be saved? And so we'll walk through Paul's letter here um, that will help guide us. And, and my prayer for us is that this ultimately grabs a hold of our hearts um, and we see Jesus because of our time together in the word. So let me pray for us before we dive in. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you are a God who has revealed himself to us, a God who desires to be known. So Father, we ask for your help by your spirit that as we sit with your word this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that our hearts would be turned towards Jesus. Lord, would you help us to better understand our salvation, our justification that comes from you? And in so doing, would this produce a life of worship, a life that is eager to share this with others? So we ask for your help. Come now. In Christ's name, amen. So as we walk through Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and turn there as we'll read together. And I'll just give you, I'll lay my cards on the table. I have no uh, hidden sucker punch for you at the end of the sermon. Justification by faith alone, through grace alone. Salvation is the work of God alone. Shall we pray and be dismissed now? <laughs> this is the point. And let's walk through this together. Romans chapter 4. Verses 1 through 12. And this is God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. 
And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is God's word. Paul's letter here to the church in Rome, and I'm sure this will be a little bit of review as you've been walking through this letter Uh, the book of Romans is probably the most densely packed theology that the Apostle Paul gives us. In fact, it's probably the most densely theological letter that we have in all of the New Testament. And we find most of our core Christian doctrines housed here in Paul's letter. And there's one particular doctrine here that's of utmost importance. It's the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, as we call it. And he's fleshing this out. But as we approach the book of Romans, we know that there's no letter, there's no scripture that was ever written in a vacuum. It was never written just because. There's always an occasion. There's always a backstory that's prompting the writing of these letters. So let's consider for a moment the story of the church in Rome and what's going on. This church in Rome was originally a Jewish church filled with Jewish believers who had made their way to the city of Rome likely for business and for commerce. And then under the persecution of Emperor Claudius, all the Jews were exiled and expelled from the city of Rome. But not all people were expelled from Rome. Who was left? The Gentiles. So then you see this switch happening in the church of Rome, this Jewish church, the Jews are sent out, the Gentiles come in and replace, and then for five years you have a pretty much solely Gentile church in Rome who picks up the guard and keeps things going. Now, Claudius, his expulsion from the city ends, and the Jews then return to the city of Rome. So now you have Jews coming back into the church. So you have Gentiles, you have Jews, and they're coming together. And there's a collision of worlds here. There are competing ideologies and ideas and doctrines and theologies that the Jews and the Gentiles are having a really hard time figuring out. And so Paul hears of this. And Paul's not the only one that hears of this. One of the fascinating things, if you read the, the pagan historian Suetonius, pagan historian had nothing to do with the church. He got wind of all the feuding, of all the arguments happening between the Jews and the Gentiles, and they're saying, We have the right answer. No, we have the right answer. We have the right answer. And he said, you guys got to see this. These squabbles and these fractures within the church. A pagan historian is making note of this. 
Now, rabbit trail. What would a pagan historian say of our churches? Would we draw their eye and their attention? Something to consider. But Paul catches wind of what's going on in the church, and Paul had never visited the church in Rome. In fact, we know it was his desire to go to Rome. He saw, and since I think by the leading of the Spirit, that the church was moving this way, it was moving westward, it was moving north, and he desired to visit Rome. You even see hints later on in the book of Romans where he would desire a potential fourth missionary journey up to Spain. It never happened. But he saw something unique and strategic about the Roman church. And he said, ooh, this needs to be addressed. We can't let this slide. Because what they're arguing most about is the question of how are we saved? How are we saved? The Jews and the Gentiles had differing ideas. And so this is where Paul enters the scene. He says, let's lay some things out here. There's no room for nuance. There's no room for these opinions. There is a truth, and let us consider now what this is. There's a collision of worlds here between the Jews and the Gentiles. Neither one of them would let go. We know about collisions of worlds. Nate mentioned in my introduction that I'm a Texan. And you know how, someone, you know how to know how someone's from Texas. Just give them a second, they'll tell you. When I moved here five years ago, um, I remember receiving a phone call. I'd, I'd been here at the school uh, for just maybe two weeks, later in the summer. And I get a call. I'm the new principal here, right? I get a call. Mr. Bond, um, it's really hot outside. What? Are you going to call hot weather days and close the school? I said, are you outside your mind? I just came from the devil's playground where it's 110 degrees. And the boys are doing two-a-day football practices. I had no idea that there were hot weather days. I had no context for this. Then I learned that not all the school buildings in the area have air conditioning, and it truly is unbearably hot in a lot of the buildings. My world was like, I had no context to understand this. I also realized that some people put beans in chili. That doesn't work in my world. You put sugar in your cornbread, but not in your iced tea. I don't understand this. A collision of worlds. So we have these Jews and these Gentiles in this church together disagreeing what's right, what's true, with the ultimate question of how are we saved? And unless the church of Jesus Christ can adequately answer this question, then we too will be lost. We too will be divided. We'll be misled. And what a shame. What a shame for the church that exists to give hope to a broken world to be unable to answer this question of how can we be saved. Because regardless of the exterior poise or posture that we all put on, at the end of the day, We're all longing to know that we can be rescued. We're all longing to know that we can be accepted despite our brokenness. And I would even propose that every hot-button topic issue that you see on the news today and in culture around us, everything that you hear and see as being celebrated as something that is good, 
and something that is true, that you know is not, is ultimately longing to have the same question answered of, tell me that I can be rescued. Tell me that I can be saved. And the fledgling church in Rome was wrestling with this very thing. So today, as we walk through again, verses 1 through 12, we're going to consider two, two big things. One is the object of Abraham's faith, and then we'll look at the timing of his faith. So let's look again, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul is using Abraham, and then we'll see in a few minutes later, King David as these case studies to prove a point. Now during his rabbinical training, Paul would have functionally received a law degree. He's quite masterful and how he presents his arguments. And so he's painting this picture of a courtroom. Salvation of humanity is on trial. Paul says, I call my first witness. Father Abraham, come to the stand, please. Puts him under oath. But why Abraham? Well, Abraham is the father, as you know, of both the Jews and the Gentiles. He's universally and unarguably accepted as the father and the fount of all the Jewish people and the Jewish religion. So Paul's example of Abraham is crucial. He's the patriarch, after all, of the, the Jewish faith. Think of all the times that you read through Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a big deal. He was the fountainhead of it all. And every good Jew would affirm this. He's esteemed as primary above every other Jew. So Paul says, there's disagreement from the Jewish believers in the church on how we're saved. The Jews were saying, our salvation is part belief in God, but part the works that we do. So he says, let's look at Abraham, the one who's the starting place of the Jewish faith. How was he saved? Was he saved by being Father Abraham? And many sons. Was he saved by walking up the mountainside and being obedient to God to sacrifice his promised son? Was he saved by being circumcised and taking this outward sign and seals we see later on in the chapter? Was it all of these actions and these good things that granted him favor with God and salvation? After all, the, the Jewish believers there in the Roman church were looking at Abraham. They would have seen that he was so righteous. He was so devout. After all, he was the one that directly received the call and the covenant from God in Genesis 12 and, and 15 and 17. He was the one that God used to establish the people of Israel and to produce the lineage of the Messiah. But Paul's point is abundantly clear as you see Abraham was justified by faith in God, not by works. It had nothing to do with his status. It had nothing to do with his piety. If that were the case, 
Who gets to boast? Who gets to brag? Who gets to say, Abe, my man, you did a good job. If Abraham was justified by his good works, if he was justified and saved by his good deeds, then he would be able to boast in all of his efforts and all of his own righteousness, and those things had contributed to his salvation. But Paul expounds that all of our salvation, especially Abraham's, is not because of something that we can muster up. It's not a matter of being good enough. And if Abraham couldn't be good enough, my friends... You and I cannot be good enough. As you walk through chapter 4, and you'll see this in verse 3 and showing up over a dozen times, you see this word counted or credited. And this is a commercial term that's used in accounting and ledgers to denote something that's been placed on somebody else's account. Abraham, we read, had something that was credited or counted to his account. Now, Paul's running with a particular thread here. Again, Paul's a master technician in this. He's taking through the book of Romans this thread of something being counted, being credited. And this is not new to Paul, but this is the thread of gospel through all of Scripture. There's three major movements of a credit that we see that Paul is leaning on here. Or some theologians might call it three imputations to place upon. And this is the gospel story. So let's consider this, and this will frame this a little bit more for us. Think back to Romans chapter 1 that you've already studied this summer. God is the good creator. He made all things good and perfect. But creation has fallen into sin. And all of creation is impacted by this. And we see this more as you get into Romans chapter 5. But the result of sin that entered into the garden, the result of depravity, is the righteous judgment and the subsequent condemnation of God's holy wrath upon sinful people. And God is holy and just and perfect to execute it. And this fall and this judgment is against all of humanity. Jews and Gentiles alike are under the curse of sin and death. It's a a death sentence that we can't get out of. This is the first crediting. This is the first imputation. That the sin and the guilt of Adam was credited to the account of all of humanity. We all have sin on our ledger because of this original sin from Adam. So that's the first crediting, the first imputation. The sin of Adam is on your ledger. It's on your account. It gets better. God's righteousness is upheld Salvation has been provided to broken and condemned creation through the substitutionary death and atonement, as you saw in chapter 3, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus assumed all the sin, all the evil of humanity upon himself. He became the sacrifice. He became the substitute for us. This is the second imputation, the second crediting on an account. All the sin of humanity was credited to Christ. All the sins of humanity were placed upon the account of Christ. It's getting better, isn't it? The third imputation, the third crediting. When Christ conquered sin and the grave, 
He has now made reconciliation and justification possible for us. Because of the sin that was on our account, we need a righteousness and a perfection that is not our own to be given to us. The righteousness of Christ then was placed upon humanity to those who believe, so that by faith we can stand blameless before a holy God. This is the third imputation. This is the third crediting that we see in the gospel narrative that Paul is drawing upon here. The righteousness of Christ has been now credited to our account, replacing the sin that was on our ledger and on our account. So it's within this imputation that Paul is positioning this text and is using Abraham as an example to prove his point. We are justified by faith alone. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He had a righteousness credited to his account. Again, the doctrine of justification here is so important. There's, there's no room for nuance and mistake. We have to get this right. And Paul's making the point, as we see here in the first few verses, that if it's true that Abraham's behavior and morality and religious deeds, if those were salvific in any way, then those would be marked in his spiritual ledger as a means that he could stand before God. But we know from Isaiah 53 that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Every good thing that we do is incapable of standing up perfectly before a holy God. Our goodness is never good enough. So then we need a righteousness given to us that is outside of ourselves. We need something external, not something intrinsic. See, in verse 4, if we can boast, if Abraham could boast that salvation is not a gift, that it is a wage, then he's saying, you do the work, you get paid. It's owed to you because of something that you did. But we see Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness Friends, his faith, Abraham's faith did not create a righteousness. The righteousness here is credited righteousness that was placed upon his account. And we know that this was the righteousness of Christ placed on the account of Abraham. So the Jewish believers would have heard these words from Paul. And they must have been struck by that statement. Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. I've heard that before. I've heard this before. A faithful Jew who knew the Torah would think back, oh, Genesis 15, 6. I see these words. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It's not a new message. It's the same gospel truth that God has been telling all along, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It is the work of God alone, apart from our works. It's a matter of faith. And the faith here that Abraham had was not merely a religious faith, but it was a saving faith. And there's something that we need to clarify before we go too deeply here about the faith that Abraham had. It was Abraham's faith and belief in God that credits righteousness to his account. It was not the strength of Abraham's faith. It was the object of his faith that saved him. So please do not leave here and say, Daniel said, have faith like Abraham and you will be saved. 
Abraham's faith could not save Abraham. Abraham is not the hero of the story because he believed in God enough. Jesus is the hero of Abraham's story. And Abraham recognized, I will place my feeble and my weak faith in God, and God will somehow, in the mystery of the divine, transfer that weak and feeble and finite faith into an imputed and perfect righteousness that's placed on my account, apart from anything that I've done. Friends, this is gospel. This is good news. Our faith wavers. Our faith is as fickle as the weather in Northeast Ohio on a summer day. Tim Keller masterfully puts it, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the object of it. You can never have enough faith to save yourself. Have faith in God and he will save you. So Abraham's and David's righteousness is accredited righteousness. Abraham believed God and he had righteousness added to his account. All right. So what's a good test to know if we are living in this, if we're walking in this? What's a good litmus test for understanding if, our, if we view our salvation is by faith alone apart from our works? Say you're in conversation with your neighbor and you ask them, neighbor, Let's assume for a minute that there really is a heaven. What do you think is the criteria to get in? Who gets in? And I could be standing here asking you all, this room, the same question. Let's assume for a minute that there really is a heaven, that it's all true. What do you think is the criteria of getting in? Who gets in? And there would be a variety of answers in your neighborhood. There'd be a variety of answers maybe even in this room. These might be some of the responses that you would hear from religious and maybe even Christian people. You might hear an answer that says, well, I would get into heaven because I've tried my best to be a good Christian. I've tried really hard to obey. I've tried really hard to get to church. I've tried really hard to tithe my 10%. I've tried really hard to volunteer for vacation Bible school. I've tried really hard to be a good Christian. And if that's our answer, then we see that salvation is by works. Or what if we say, well, I think I would get into heaven because I believe in God and I try to do his will. Well, maybe we're inching closer. Because I believe in God and I try to do his will. If this is the answer of our hearts, then this reveals that we see salvation by faith plus some works added on to it. What about this third option? I should get into heaven because I believe in God with my whole heart. Now, this might sound really similar to some of the message that we've heard or even used before. But where does this fall short? If we say I should get into heaven because I believe with all of my heart, because I have strong faith in God, then we're viewing salvation by faith as a work. Or faith itself is the merit of our salvation. In each each case, a religious person can do the right things and even the Christian things in this life. But if we answer with any one of these kinds of answers and responses, we're revealing something deep within us that is resting in a form of self-justification, not 
Justification by grace alone, through faith alone. Let's keep reading in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from his works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul says, I would like to bring my next witness to the stand. And he brings in King David. Continue to make his case on how are we saved. Now King David, similar to Abraham, King David is revered. He is respected. He is viewed as unparalleled greatness in the eyes of a faithful Jew. He's the one true king. There would be no contest around his legitimacy and his status. So both Abraham and David stood as icons here and heroes of the Jewish faith. But as impressive as they were, were they perfectly righteous? Could they stand before a holy God? No. They were liars, cheaters, murderers, adulterers, and the list goes on and on and on. So how could they be saved? Paul is begging this question of the Jews. He's saying, come on, I'm laying it all up for you. Ask the question, how were Abraham and how were David saved? Abraham and David received a righteousness and a salvation that was outside of themselves. Abraham and David were sinful and depraved men who were called by God. They believed in God. They trusted his promises. So the Lord gave them a righteousness that was not their own that they could never earn. So now, even despite their sinfulness, they can stand blameless before a holy and a righteous God. As you read passages like this, we're always looking for, where do we see Jesus in these things? And we're seeing him as the one who gives us his righteousness. But then our next question should be, where do we see ourselves? Where am I as I read this? That's pretty easy for me to find myself. Verses 6 through 8, as Paul's quoting David from Psalm 32, God justifies the ungodly. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds. Later in verse 7, whose sins are covered. Verse 8, blessed is the man. That's me. David saw himself as the man here. He was the those. He was the whose. And friends, you and I are as well. We are the man here who is sinful and needs to be forgiven. We are the man, here in verse 8, like King David, who is lawless and sinful, the, one, the ones who are dead in our trespasses and are enemies with God. But we've received a salvation and a righteousness outside of ourselves. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, he was also struck by this, this profound truth in the book of Romans, and it radically changed his life. And he coined this Latin phrase, simo ustus et peccator. Simultaneously justified while still a sinner. At the same time, justified and saved, but still a sinner. What a beautiful picture of how God has met us in this reality. What a mystery. 
What a marvelous work that only God can do to take our weeble, our weak, and our feeble faith and grant us a perfect righteousness on our account instead. So the object of Abraham's faith matters. Let's look at the timing of his faith. Look in verse 9. Is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I don't think I've said that word so many times before today. So Paul's moving his argument forward through the rest of this passage here. In regards to Abraham's credited righteousness, he seeks to prove the point that Abraham was accepted by God and received a credited righteousness before he was circumcised. Think back to the book of Genesis. Think to chapter 12 when God calls Abraham. Was Abraham walking with God when God showed up and called him? He was a pagan. He had no concept of God. His church attendance was pretty sketchy. He didn't worship. He had done nothing good, nothing religious on behalf of God. But God called him before he was circumcised. The timing of this matters, especially for this first um, century audience here. Faithful Jews had put a good deal of of emphasis on circumcision. After all, it was an outward sign and a seal that they were designated people of God. They were recipients of God's covenant. They'd been set apart for a particular purpose, and this was the outward sign and symbol of that. They couldn't ignore it, and Paul doesn't expect them to ignore it. But it's like Paul is saying, okay, we're in the courtroom. I'd like to bring another piece of evidence, and I've got a... uh, a video that we're going to watch. So let's back up the footage a little bit. Let's see how all these things take place. Let's rewind it a little bit. Hit the rewind button. Watching, watching. Oh, there's Abraham. Oh, there's Isaac. Oh, yep. See, there it is. There it is. Abraham believed God and received accredited righteousness before, see, before the circumcision, not after. Why does this matter? I think Paul's point is twofold. One, Abraham cannot boast in his efforts. He can't boast in his morality and his religious works as any basis for his right standing with God. Again, he can't, he can't pat himself on the back and say, good job, Abe. You kept the rules. You did the right things. You obeyed the law. You got circumcised. You did all these things. And that helped you get saved. That contributed. That's why God picked you, because you did those. Abraham exercised a saving faith in God before this outward sign and seal. Had it been the other way around, perhaps Abraham would have been tempted, or Jews later on down the line, as we would see even here in the church in Rome, would have been tempted to look at and say, that's why, because he was circumcised. But Paul says, God took that out of the equation. 
And the second reason, the fact that Abraham was called by God and believed in God apart from his circumcision clarifies that salvation is not just for the circumcised. It's not just for the Jew. Salvation's call is upon Jew and Gentile alike. Again, remember the context of this first century church. You have the Jews over here saying, we've got it all figured out. We've got the right answers of how to be saved. The Gentiles over here saying, no, we have the answers of how to be saved. And Paul says, stop. God came to bring salvation to all who would believe. This was God's plan all along. Even going back to early in Genesis, God was using the election of his people in Israel to set up a gospel story that would be an invitation for all nations. He was paving the way from the very beginning for his grand plan of salvation. And all are invited to confess and to believe that Jesus is Lord. And friends, that's our invitation today. To confess, to believe. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're realizing that you need to place your faith in Christ for the first time. Maybe you're sitting here asking yourself, do I really believe that I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from my works? Do I really believe there's a heaven that, and I'm asked the question, why should you get in here? Do I really understand and believe that I would have the right answer? Perhaps you've heard the gospel today for the very first time, or maybe the hundredth time and you realize you need to place your faith in Jesus, you can do that today. Paul would say in a few chapters later in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Have you placed your faith in Jesus, trusting that he alone is the one who can justify you before a holy God? He alone is the one who takes the sin that's on your account, that's on your ledger of life, and says, I'm going to remove that sin, and I'm not just going to bring the scales to balance. I'm going to also give you the righteousness of Christ, so you receive the righteousness and the riches of the Son of Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? If not, maybe today is that day. Perhaps you're sitting here, and you're faithfully walking with the Lord. You're a believer, and you say, yes, I do believe this. Yes, I have placed my faith in Jesus. Yes, I do affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any works of my own. Your invitation today is twofold. Are you telling a right theology and a proper answer to the question, how are we saved? The world's asking. Culture's asking this question. Your neighbors are asking this question whether they ever verbalized or not. Do you have the right answer to explain to them justification? You are saved by grace through faith. Even your faith is not the basis of your salvation. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. To your family that sees you every day, are your words and actions telling a true gospel that salvation and favor with God is never earned by being a good person. It's never earned by keeping enough rules. As a parent, I'm struck by this as I think about my own children. 
And I'm sobered by this reality of considering what picture of God, what understanding of gospel am I giving to my kids? The easier way in parenting, the easier my default response to my children is a workspace righteousness. But I say, God loves you, but keep all my rules. I love you, but do all these things. At school, I have kids in my office daily. Even the good Christian kids, right? And I'm humbled by this. And I ask myself this question each morning. Lord, what kind of picture of you will I give these children, even in their hardest moments? Will they see you, Jesus? Will they see that they are loved and accepted by you apart from their ability to keep the rules? Have we understood, have we fully embraced that our salvation and favor with God is never hanging by any threads of our behavior, but it's already secured. It's finished in the work of Jesus. And once we understand this, and once we see this ourselves, it should change the way we relate to others. It should change our friendships, our marriages, our relationships with our children, our neighbors. And my second question to us, church, have you allowed the doctrine of justification by grace through faith to seep deeply into your heart and reshape your identity? I know one of my great fears for our church today is that we profess with our lips that God is the one who saves us, but we unravel ourselves and never rest in the finished work of Christ because we're living and we end up functioning as though our faith and our good works are somehow meritorious and salvific for us. And I say this to you because I've walked this and lived this for many, many years. Where I would look and see, man, I did a pretty good job. Look at my reputation. Look at this status. Oh, you should have heard me talking to that person and the way I answer those deep theological questions. Do you see that seminary degree on my wall? Oh, I'm a really good parent. And so I would confess with my lips that God is the one who saves us, but all my actions would be revealing a heart that is seeking to find identity and purpose and value and rescue in my good works. You will never rest, friends. Paul hits this idolatry head-on, actually, in the book of Galatians. He's speaking to the Judaizers, who were believers, who said, you got to keep being Jewish and keeping all the rituals and the feasts and celebrations and the routines and the rules in order to be saved. And Paul writes this in Galatians 3. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish? Believing that you begun salvation by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your flesh? Like the Galatians, friends, do you confess that God justifies you, but every next step you're living in your life is not rooted in this truth? Are you trying to produce a righteousness of your own? Some of you need to hear our word today. Rest. Breathe. Breathe. 
be. All of your striving, all your efforts, all your good deeds, even your godly deeds, even your ministry here at Victory Life Church will not save you. I'm not saying neglect the spiritual disciplines. Don't stop reading your Bible. Don't stop praying. Don't stop serving. But ask yourself these questions. Why am I doing these things and how does God see me? I've been wrestling with that question, that second question, for the last year. Daniel, how does God see you? And he has unraveled a lot of idols in my heart. And he has unwound a lot of lies that I've built my life upon that would say, I believe and I love Jesus, but I'm going to act and live out my own righteousness as if I could please God even more. Your beloved. Simul ustus et peccator. You are simultaneously justified while still a sinner. Because of the righteousness of Christ, you can stand before a holy God. Christ will always be the good enough for us. Spurgeon said, the way of reaching the state of justification is not by tears, nor prayers, nor humblings, nor working, nor Bible reading, nor church going, nor chapel going, nor sacraments, nor priestly absolution, but by faith, which faith is a simple and an utter dependence in believing in the faithfulness of God. A dependence upon the promise of God because it is God's promise and is worthy of dependence. You can know in your head that God is the one who grants righteousness to us that's not our own, but is that really changing how you go through your day? If salvation rests solely in the finished work of Christ, have you let yourself rest in that? Is it shaping you, to shaping your identity. Is this informing the way you see yourself? Or are you running yourself ragged because deep down you're living out the false notion that your good and godly works are somehow contributing to your salvation? Friends, this is the great lie of the enemy that would seek to distract and divide the body of Christ with scurrying and scrambling rather than resting and abiding. Rest and abide with Christ. Your salvation is secure. This is the work of God, not of yourself. As we close in prayer, perhaps you've been considering what is my salvation? Like Abraham, I want to believe but I also know that my own faith and my own good works will never save me. And this is the heart of the gospel. God is the one who saves us. So if you would like to consider this more and talk and pray, uh, there are leaders here in this church that would love to speak with you. I would love to, to speak and to pray with you about this good gift of salvation that is ours through Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, we thank you for how you have revealed yourself, your grand plan of salvation, and you also reveal and expose our hearts, our own idols, our own misconceptions of this great need for salvation. 
So, Father, would you do the work that only you can do by your spirit to raise dead people to life? Lord, would you grant faith where it is needed? Lord, and would you allow this truth that we stand rightly before you because of you alone to transform our lives? We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, can we thank Daniel for that message? It's always a blessing to be reminded of the gospel, be reminded of how we are saved, that it doesn't depend on us, uh, that it depends on Jesus. And so uh, we're definitely grateful for that. Well, we would love to have you come back uh, next week and continue to hear more about God's word through Romans. Uh, For now, God bless. Have a great week.